0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Bee podcast. My name is Stuart Ratcliffe. I'm a beekeeper in southern Indiana. Before I play my talk with Bill Mares, um, I've just got a few updates. I originally created a Facebook group page for the podcast, where people had to ask me to join the group. Then they would be able to post to the page. My original thought is that it would be easier for people to see each other's posts and, and talk with each other And it does work well for that, but I think there's a lot of people out there that just aren't really interested in in joining groups like that. So I decided to create a regular Facebook page where people just like it and then are able to get my updates that way. So I think I'll be able to reach um, a lot more people by having a page like that. And also, with a regular Facebook page, I can create a custom tab called Podcasts and then actually embed all my episodes from SoundCloud on there, and then people can either play the podcast through my Facebook page, or they can download it. And if they download it like that, where it's embedded on a page, uh, then people don't actually have to have a SoundCloud account in order for it to download. Whereas right now, if you go to my Thinking Be podcast SoundCloud page, then when you try to click download, it... It opens up a page for people to create a new account and then have to download that way. I do plan on building a regular website and that would make things, uh, much easier for, for everybody and, and everything. So, but, um, I think a Facebook page like this is a good idea too. So I'm still going to keep my group page. But I'm going to make it a an exclusive invite-only group page for people who either donate or become a patron on Patreon. And those people will be able to ask questions for the Q&A and suggest questions to ask my guests and kind of help me plan the direction of where the podcast should go and what all I should add to it or do with it. And so, I may or may not have the Patreon page up by the time I put this podcast out, but um, I do have the new Thinking Bee Podcast Facebook page up, and it's at facebook.com slash Podcast, and I'll add a link to that in the info. And so, be sure to check that out and like it and, and share it if you can. And without further ado, I give you Bill Mares. He's been beekeeping for around 40 years in Vermont and has been a past president of both the Vermont Beekeepers Association and the Eastern Apiculture Society. He's written a book on beekeeping called Bees Besieged, and he's traveled to many countries around around the world and has observed beekeeping in those places and has done a lot of work in Central and South America in helping coffee growers supplement their income with beekeeping, and so we talk about some of that. So, here's my talk with Bill Mayers. Hi, Bill. It's Stuart. Yeah. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Great. Great. Okay. So, how can I help you?
0: Yeah. Well, I um, I guess I started a a podcast uh, at the beginning of last month, and so you know, I you sounded like a really interesting uh, person in regards to beekeeping to talk to, and I think um, a lot of people would really enjoy some of hearing some of your experiences. So. Um you know I thought maybe we could go over a few of those things. Okay. And um so yeah I'm not even going to really begin to list everything that you've done but maybe try to go over, you know, a few things in regards to beekeeping. Um first I was trying to remember you you had you were um the uh, Vermont Beekeepers Association president for a couple years or a few years.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I um I I've been a member, I don't know, for 20 years or so, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, organizations, small organizations, uh, uh, you, you have, <laughs> you need to put in your time, and, uh, so I got asked to be, uh, you know, on the board, and then I became president, and then while I was president, I, uh, went on to the board of the Eastern Agricultural Society, and then I, um, then uh, I became, well, I became president every year, of the Eastern EAS does a, a conference in a different eastern state, and so that was the year that I I was president of EAS when we hosted it here in Vermont. So those have been my two kind of formal beekeeping uh, positions.
0: Um, yeah. Was the uh, the VBA one? I'm I'm trying to remember. I I went up to one of the VBA me, uh, meetings a couple of years ago when I worked with. Uh, Mike Palmer, and, and I couldn't remember if someone, uh, if you were, I guess if your term was over, I, I can't remember who was president at the time, I think maybe either Chaz Moraz was stepping up no, it was or stepping Chaz
1: down. Chaz or, um, or Kim Greenwood.
0: Okay, yeah, maybe I was, I think, yeah, I think someone was kind of, um, uh, you know, honoring some of the um, experiences that you 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 had been doing. I think that was Mike Willard, but um, oh, Mike so,
1: Willard, yeah, um, that's right. I was I was the first they gave you know the first Beekeeper of the Year award, and that was yeah. Uh, you know, Mike went on and on and on about yeah. that, but
0: yeah. I'm
1: really not a very. I mean, I'm an okay beekeeper, <laughs> but but i I'm not. Uh, I don't want that on my gravestone. Uh, as a, um, I mean, a lot better beekeepers out there but I I have loved it and I've done it for 45 years and and uh, so um, yeah it's one of those hobbies it's stuck
0: yeah yeah well I think taking the um, initiative to, to help other beekeepers I think that's a good quality to have too and it seems like that's that's something that you have so um, I think that's a good good thing to uh, acknowledge in people
1: um, well it, it, it actually um, I mean it is and the guy who taught me 40 almost 45 years ago was a retired geologist who uh, had kept bees as a kid and then when he moved to Vermont he took it up again and he became kind of a pied piper of beekeepers in, uh across the state another another county over there and uh and my wife and I just moved into the area and Thought well, beekeeping would be an interesting hobby, and and so he was he was my mentor for the first two years, and he was just a terrific guy. And he would drop everything he was doing, get in his car, and drive over to somebody's house and show him this and show him that, tell him what to buy, and and um, uh, and I swore that if I ever got to be his age, I would do the same thing. So that's really what I've been doing for the last ten or fifteen years. I teach uh, class at one of the Local night schools, um, three times a year, and we do workshops through the summer, and, and, um, you know, it helps. I was a school teacher for a while, so it's, it's okay. easier to, to, you know, to know how to teach and, and sense the audience and sense who, who your students are than if you try to do this blind, and, and, um, so I, I think the two things have worked together, and it's been great fun to, each, uh, you know, I tell people I'm uh, dealing legal drugs by uh, turning them on to beekeeping.
0: Yeah, oh yeah, that's really, uh, there's something, I don't know what it is about, about beekeeping. It's some, it brings out some sort of, I don't know, like prim, primal interest in, in this creature. I don't know what it is that, that really hooks people. Um, it's just a really fascinating subject. Um, well,
1: I I think that it to me that the thing that is that is is fun to teach is <laughs> that you're <clears throat> and I tell people I said you've got a chance to work with an an, an animal a, a creature that is neither domestic nor wild it's right on the cusp and and so you and and you are responsible for that creature's survival I mean with all the things that are going on so. So you're going to work with this creature. It's not going to be. It's not like a domestic pet, but it's not like a wolf or a you know feral animal. And uh, uh, and so it has both kind of um, scientific science in it and art. And um, and you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to learn everything there is to know about bees. So it teaches you humility. Uh, and, um, and then they give you all these great creatures, uh, great, uh, products like honey and propolis and wax and mm-hmm. stuff. And, uh, uh, it's not for everyone, but you, you get, to, you, get to work with this, this creature, um, and help it survive uh, while you get to survive emotionally.
0: Yeah. I really love how you word that being on the cusp of, uh, wildness and domestication. You know, I wonder if 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 it's kind of in in the oh, what, how do I want to word it uh, in the process of actually being domesticated because you know there are certain traits that we can um, kind of adjust to our liking. Um, so I wonder if you know, 500 years down the road, if it'll if it'll be just a completely different creature. You know, if we if we had um bred out swarming by then or you know what that would look like so huh. yeah i don't well, know Well, that's
1: an interesting thought i mean uh, stranger things have happened but i i frankly uh from a poetic standpoint and i guess from a biologic standpoint i'd hope we we don't breed swarming mm-hmm. out of them because then they really are just like uh feedlot cattle and and uh I know Kim Floridum of uh, Bee, Bee Culture Magazine calls uh, current uh, industrial beekeeping uh, feedlot beekeeping, uh, and I wouldn't want to be having a thousand or five thousand hives and, and have to be on that kind of a schedule. Uh, um, you know, I'd still want to do it on this level, but. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I really agree. I agree. I think it's one of the you know, if you can classify it as livestock, I don't know if you can, but it's one of those few out there that really keeps you grounded to the natural environment and yeah. and recognizing the natural cycles of things. So
1: Right. Right. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, um yeah, something I was really interested in is kinda of hearing about some of your travels and and I know you've gone to a number of different countries and then uh to look at uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, look at different people beekeeping, but then you also went to South America and did uh, some really uh, good work down there. But maybe if you can kind of give sure. an overview. Uh, of... Yeah,
1: I started um, oh ten or ten or twelve years ago. Um, I have a, a good friend, uh, and actually, we've written a book together about his uh, work in the coffee industry. Uh, But in the course of that, I uh, started to go down to Central America primarily, uh, partly with him, partly on my own, partly to learn Spanish, uh, uh, partly to see uh, just a new part of the world. And I got, because this guy, his name is Rick Pizer, has uh, really became a, a, a major force in the coffee industry on helping coffee farmers um uh produce a more um sustainable livelihood than just be dependent on coffee and and he got his company to put a lot of money into these projects and and i uh, um and he worked with a couple of non profits to do to do this sort of thing as well as what the company was doing and and in the course of that, I began to think about what could could beekeeping be something that uh Th- they could support, and could beekeeping be a, a a source of of additional income for these coffee farmers? Mm-hmm. And uh, within a year or so, I, I was working with uh, Dewey Karen, uh, who was uh, was then a professor at the University of Delaware, and another guy from Pennsylvania who does work in Panama. And it was very. It was soon clear that there had been beekeeping a long time in. Latin America. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was presumptuous to say, well, you're going to be a gringo and go down and teach these coffee farmers beekeeping. But, uh, because beekeeping was already established, uh, what about doing some what we like to call lateral information arbitrage and figure out ways for beekeepers to, or for the coffee farmers to learn beekeeping from their Fellow citizens in Nicaragua or El Salvador or Guatemala or Mexico. And so yeah. we started supporting some programs that did that. And they, there were uh, various training programs. We also found uh, cooperatives, uh, coffee cooperatives, which were, which were themselves doing sound beekeeping. And indeed, we even found one co-op in Nicaragua where they had given up coffee in order to do bees, because unlike most places, they could produce honey from three different harvests. So they could they could move the bees around to different floral sources and uh, and just give up on the coffee because they could make even more money out of just honey. Then there were other co-ops where they. They did some of the individuals in the co in the coops uh, took mm-hmm. up honey and left coffee and while others stayed in coffee. Others did both. I have a favorite picture I've got of a woman the wife of a coffee farmer, and she's sitting on the veranda of their house in S- southern mexico and she's sewing his veil and in the background is the patio where they're drying the coffee that he is, that they have produced. And Mm. that family produced 300 kilos of coffee, 300 kilos of honey Mm -hmm. in the course of the year. So they were doing both. And um, so that was, you know, it was very satisfying on an individual basis. And then Rick Pizer started a nonprofit called Food for Farmers that, exist now and I'm on the board in fact I got a board meeting uh, tomorrow um, to do this I mean not just honey it's a lot of other projects but honey beekeeping is one of those so we have kind of embedded this kind of training into our um, uh, you know our menu of activities that we offer or suggest to some of these uh, cooperatives and we're we're now working in Colombia, Mexico, uh, and Guatemala, and uh, and Nicaragua in, in different with different uh, groups of, of still mainly coffee farmers.
0: So are these um, villages or towns, uh, specific towns that you go to? Or... Well, it's not
1: towns. Oh, the, the co-ops are spread
0: out oh, over okay. a,
1: an area. It's not as if the co-op is in... In Mexico, there are communities which are not organized as cooperatives, and we have dealt with them. But but primarily, we've dealt with co-ops which are spread over, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 square miles, and they're in, some people are living out in the countryside, and other people are living in, in little villages. But it is an area covered by a cooperative where 100, 200, 300 farmers, farmer families jointly, uh, work together and they all have different ways of deciding how they, they're not really a collective. It isn't like everything goes into one pot and then okay. they divide it up. I mean, they, if, if you, if one guy produces 500 kilos of coffee and another guy produces 300 kilos of coffee, they get in income a, an equivalent. I mean, the, the, a, a payment that's congruent with the amount that they produce, but they have uh, a joint share uh, a selling. Um, uh, you know, they hire someone yeah. to do the quality control. They hire somebody to do the selling and so forth. But it is a it's a long. I mean, cooperatives are a long tradition in Mexico, particularly. Oh, uh,
0: really? Uh, so. Does uh, the organization, this uh, Food for Farmers, uh, do they have a group of people or, or a person uh, helping them down there all the time, or is it kind of um, kind of go in and help people uh, get started, and then they kind of take it from there?
1: Well, that's a good question. It's actually the reverse. It's it, what what we do. Is we 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 don't have the boots on the ground to deliver serve I mean to deliver uh, money or that sort of thing. What we help people do is our our forte is helping people do their own analysis. so so we take them through a series of of templates of of self analysis and training to get them to decide what it is they want to do. so in this menu of things, there, there's beekeeping and there is, uh, 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 fruit and vegetable stuff. There's, uh, uh, edible mushrooms. There's, there's a variety of things that we put before them, pros and cons. And there's kind of uh, training programs that we, we don't do. Other people are going to do. But it, we, we're trying to open their eyes to, the kinds of non-coffee economic activities which will supplement their, their income from coffee. Because as you know, coffee is a, has wildly sick, wild cycles in pricing. And so you could, you could have quality, very high quality coffee and you get a high price for it. And the next year, I mean, everyone's producing it and then the price goes in the tank. And so, it's really hard to plan and then reinvest when you've got such so many of these swings that are well known, and particularly in the coffee industry. So we're we're trying to help them rubble out the valleys in a way of their both family and cooperative income, and to help them make <clears throat> the choices on how they do that. So that's that's really our our cruise, well, not our crusade, but certainly our our bread and butter.
0: And so, um, you know, these, uh, I guess, coffee, I don't know what you call them, plantations or uh, farms? No, they're not
1: plantations. We're not dealing with plantations. Or, these, uh, these are cooperatives,
0: or, or, yeah, at, the, at which at least...
1: means a collection of members of a, uh, a central organization.
0: okay. Yeah. so so are there any um, I guess uh, influences of you know really big agricultural guys kind of taking away some of the market in some areas or is that um, you know, well fairly... that's another good
1: question and it varies from country to country and and uh, so in Mexico there are um, a couple no it's more than that I mean Say in, in the state of Yucatan, down, uh, where Chichen Itza, Mazatlan, I'm not Mazatlan, but uh, Mermerada, that is a, is probably the biggest honey producing part of Mexico, and I believe almost all of that is states. That's individuals who have, uh, hundreds or even thousands of colonies of honey, and they have employees. But in, uh, Chiapas, and in Oaxaca, where we have done more work, uh, more of that honey is produced on the cooperative basis. And as far as we know, the estate guys, they're not poaching on... Uh, they're not coming in to take over the cooperative honey uh, production. Uh, it's not a, a competition that way. It's more... As I understand it, historically it developed that way. Uh, now in Nicaragua, it's a little more complicated because uh, there are existing coffee cooperatives, and some of them are starting to do some honey, um, but their their honey is not uh, always of a of a good quality, hmm. and so they're not able to sell it at the highest price. And there are coyotes. I mean, there are people who, uh, you know, that you know what the term coyote means in, in no, this no. context.
0: can you explain that? It's
1: it, coyote. It, I mean, it's it's our spelling, but it's someone who comes in and, and buys uh, for cash
0: mm-hmm. at a
1: low price, at a lower price than they could get on the market. Mm-hmm. But if people need the money, uh, they they often and it happens in the coffee industry as well as in honey. Uh, there's then also another level of you could call them coyotes of people who would pay a little bit more than the fly the fly by night guys, uh, but they're <clears throat> they're buying up this lower quality honey because then they can sell it as an industrial honey, not as a you know, not as a table honey. And from what we can tell, they're they're a reasonable operation. I think they may even be German. Uh, hmm. So it's it's a it's a mixed bag um, and um, uh, we we're not trying to fight at that political battle we're not trying to say you've only got to be a co-op and you've got to be pure and you got to uh, we we're still back at this at first base and saying look think through this and are you are you as a group do you want to do this as a group you want to let your individual members do this as a group because even in in Nicaragua we've we've had cases where uh 20 people start and after 3 years there's only three or four are still doing it but they're doing well and they bought equipment from the other guys hmm. so it's it's not um how shall i say uh, kind of a uh, um, uh radical uh um uh, uh, I mean, we're certainly not trying to tell them this is how you must do it. There's only one size fits all oh, uh, right. because there's a bell curve. I mean, if you look at the beekeepers, you know, there's a bell curve in these guys. Mm-hmm. They all start at the same time, and two or three out of ten will be really good, and three or four of them will get out of it entirely. Well, the same things happen to them um, because the actual all of these and all of these bees are Africanized. Oh, yeah. So it, yeah. It, they're not even as gentle as ours and and to ask somebody to come out of coffee generations of coffee growing in the family and take up beekeeping they they you're asking them to to suit up have a double sized smoker and be prepared to get us things that that most of us would
0: probably uh, avoid yeah yeah. But the bees are the bees are a little bit
1: healthier than the you know than our bees, and they're, they're more resistant to brood, and and they produce a crop.
0: Yeah, yeah, I saw um, you know some of the pictures on one of your uh, talks, and, um, yeah, u- using, like, smokers, and, and yeah, they were using like the double sized smokers, and then they even had uh, one of their donkeys suited up in.
1: Oh yeah, well uh, that's actually <laughs> a picture I got from uh, Brazil. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> I wish I could say that was mine, uh, but uh, but yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, you know, as as far as being Africanized, I guess what differences other than using a lot more smoke um, is there in, in in beekeeping and management?
1: Well, I think I mean one one is that you most of them you put on individual stands because uh, you don't want this sympathetic vibration to go, go down sense. a row or certainly on a, a two because uh, uh, once you once you set one off uh, you're going to set off another. and uh, um, they uh, uh, you know some people work from the usually I mean if, if they know their are high in their yard, they will, uh, work on the most channel ones first, and going up towards the uh, the most uh, uh, peppery. Uh, but they uh, and um, I think they, uh, you know, they only got one usually because there's no winter. It's uh, they're doing it all out of one high one uh, brood box, and then mm-hmm. everything above that is uh, supers of of honey, and their their production is certainly not as great as ours. I mean, if they get they get twenty kilos out of a hive, that's a lot.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, um, and but they, they say, I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen uh, I've seen yards with sixty or seventy hives in them.
0: That's that's quite a few. Yeah, for for production. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah.
1: And and uh, I think another thing has struck me from a Management standpoint was that even the one people who, I mean, because buying new queens is expensive. And so many people try to breed from their own stock or at least to, to find the, the queens or the hives that are somewhat less aggressive uh, and that they, because they're in an apiary of 15 or 20 or 25 hives, they can see which ones are uh, less or more aggressive, and they can make splits from the less aggressive ones. Mm-hmm. And they can lower the overall temperature of the of the apiary by, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20%. And that's, that's worth something. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, in, in a couple of places I was I, I certainly didn't work without a veil but I could go and work with uh, with without gloves um, and and uh, to me that the, the proof was in the pudding I mean it's it's uh, uh, and and but as I said even so you've got plenty of coffee farmers that said who needs this who 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 wants to mm. Uh. Work this hard and this in this hot, uh, uniform and take these stings uh, for the sake of this honey. But yeah. then again, there are some that do. Yeah.
0: So, so what, is it just kind of becoming, uh, to the point where it's just not, um, you know, enough income for, um, the people working for the co op to, to take care of their families. And so, uh, I mean, are there any other things that they're kind of looking for um, besides beekeeping? I mean, I guess... Oh, yeah, I, well, there's other
1: crops. Yeah. And uh, uh, and uh, where, I mean, fruits and vegetables and, uh, as they say, edible mushrooms. And yeah. uh, I think there are some other economic activities that have been broached to them uh it's it, it as i said in another context it's not one size fits all we're not mm-hmm. saying you all should now do beekeeping or we you should all do uh um, fruits and vegetables uh um it's but it's a the little a a small how shall i say uh a modest bit of advice, uh, that we can give and show some results and show some, some economic value, some money in the, in the bank from either beekeeping or some of these other activities that people could try. And then we let them decide. Yeah. We don't. I mean, you know, we're not a we're not a bank holding them up, saying, "Okay, well, if you do this and so, we'll give you the money." Oh, That's right. up to somebody else to do.
0: No, oh, yeah, yeah, but at least it's an option, and and bees beekeeping, you know, is very versatile, in all the different products of the hive and what you can do with those products. So, um, at least it's a um, a good option, you know, for people that that might want to do that. Yeah. And yeah. Exactly. Right. I guess. Is there, I guess, any market for actually selling the bees themselves, or is that not quite like the U.S. in that there's not really much of a de- demand for packages or, or nukes or anything like that? I don't
1: think it's widespread. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the two Latin American countries that have the most developed beekeeping industry are Mexico and Argentina. Mm-hmm. In Argentina, Yes. But Argentina doesn't have any coffee, so we, mm. we haven't been working there. But Mexico, mm. Mexico has, uh, several, uh, queen breeders, uh, who, who sell, uh, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of queens to other, uh, to beekeepers. Mm. I don't know anything, uh, about a package industry, if there is one. Okay. Um, I simply don't know. Um, I think it, what I understood was people, if people were making splits, they'd either do it with their own uh, cells uh, or they would buy uh, queens. Uh, and there is uh, there are a number of beekeepers, probably not in the co-ops. We dealt with them. It's usually more these estate guys who would buy queens uh, every year or every other year. Just to keep the temperature of the bees down because invariably they're Af- get Africanized uh, again even if they're brought in from the <clears throat> from
0: non well locally there's there's um, I mean they can
1: breed they, they can deliberately make queens that are somewhat less aggressive but once they after they get rep- superseded then they get they're getting superseded with with um, aggressive genes from the drones. We don't know how how big, or indeed, if there is a package industry.
0: And so, you know, they are Africanized bees, and so they're supposed to be, you know, much more tolerant to varroa mites. Are there still any, you know, problems with varroa, or are they able oh, yeah. to?
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody. I mean, I don't know, everybody we know still uses uh, primarily oxalic acid. Okay, they use
0: they
1: use it drip, and they. The guys we know the best. I mean, I don't know if other people do it, but he, he actually uses syringe and you drip it down the sides of the frames and, uh,
0: twice a year he does it. But are they, um, you know, noticeably more tolerant than, uh, most European honeybees in the U.S.?
1: I, Dewey Karen, who I defer to, who's, uh, you know, much more knowledgeable. Beekeeper than I am says yes. Uh, and I don't know how, what, what percentage that would be. I don't think it's, I don't think they're a hundred percent more resistant or maybe even 50% more resistant, but I think they are noticeably more resistant to the Varroa. Uh, and, but I think that's also partly due to their, uh, more frequent swarming. Oh, yeah. Because right. then there's a broodless period and away they go. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, I'm, I'll bet it's a combination of the two.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, and then I also saw, um, I think in one of the slides on, I, I watched your, um, well, I, I don't think you uploaded it, but someone put a video up of, of you talking about, uh, this kind of stuff. And so, um, there was a slide about using bee venom and is that, is that a, a marketable thing then, uh, in that area?
1: Um, Uh, well, I never heard of anybody doing apatherapy down there, uh, there, uh, although I, I mean, I think it was probably part of traditional medicine, um, mm -hmm. in the, if not in the pre-Columbian times, at least in the last three or 400 years, um, uh, and, but I, I don't, um, I don't know that there is any, um, uh, if there's a technology anywhere, uh, and certainly in the countryside, for collecting bee venom. I know Charlie uh, Chaz Mraz here in Vermont collects it. He's got mm-hmm. quite an elaborate electrified uh, fence system for for doing this, but he's collecting very small amounts, hmm. um, and selling them into the pharmaceutical uh, industry. Um, I think that the uh, more, how shall I say, uh, more um, widespread than the use of venom is the Use or raising of stingless bees and some of that uh, melipone and mm. trigona honey, which is uh, almost as rare. I mean, in in amounts, it's it's very small. Mm. I mean, it, and it sells for I don't know. It's not twenty dollars. Maybe you know probably fifty or sixty dollars a pound. Uh, but they don't. Those bees don't produce that much honey. But they do have a. Uh, There's a long folk tradition, uh, and you can buy that honey in in health food stores here. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether it has its purported qualities. I mean, just as I don't know that royal jelly has the properties that it is claimed to have, um, but but you can, there's snake oil salesmen, uh, yeah. in bees as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, no, I don't
1: know. I mean, I I do believe in apotherapy, um, under the right conditions and I self medicate with it. And, uh, but I, I mean, people that do it properly, I think it, it is as effective as, as acupuncture is for some people, or maybe even the majority of people, but I, I don't <laughs> think it works for everyone. Um, but I, and, uh, but I'm not really answering your question because I, I don't, I didn't hear of at least the people we deal with practicing, uh, apotherapy, uh, or doing anything with the resulting, uh, serum.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those, those, uh, stingless bee, uh, nests, those are just very, very bizarre looking in the, the way they store their honey and those, Pots or tubes—it's just something oh, yeah. very. It looks
1: like a chambered nautilus. It looks like a you know a seashell. It's a really it is interesting.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, um, I guess maybe if you don't mind the, uh, you've gone to several other countries, uh, not necessarily in South or Central America. I think you've gone to uh, China and Croatia and some other places. I don't. Did you have a certain um goal in mind and traveling over there as far as learning about beekeeping or
1: well know? i think that was the uh, th- there was one time in, in Argentina i went and volunteered at a school for a week or so and i helped them uh help their beekeepers but those guys were really pretty advanced i don't think i added anything to their intellectual uh, property down there um it was just fun to see a, a school that was for native um the native Indians and mm-hmm. they were trying they were teaching them a variety of skills and they had a very good beekeeping program and then these other places it's just um it's just fun. I mean it's kind of like uh you know if you're a, a chess player and you go travel to other countries you go find a chess club and hang out with them and uh if you are a tennis player you go find a tennis club and go hit some tennis balls and so uh you know I, I've never been shy about uh Stopping and, uh, if there's a chance, uh, to just talk to look to look at even with hand gestures. I remember being in Uzbekistan and standing stopping. I knew a little Russian and I talked to these guys about their, their bees and ended up trading a hat I had for a beekeeper's hat that this guy had and I still have it. Uh-huh. And, uh, so it's just, you know, there's a confederation of, of beekeepers and I don't think I've ever been um Put off or off put by a, a beekeeper when I stopped and identified myself as as another beekeeper, and and you can do a lot with with hand gestures and just you know, look at the hive, and you know people hand you a smoker and put a veil on you and show you they're all proud, and uh, so it's you know it's really sort of low grade ambassador, uh, you know, citizen diplomacy, uh, but it's just fun. I mean, it's nice to uh it'll meet people that way in a very low-key fashion
0: yeah it's it's a really neat way to i think connect with people in other cultures you know since beekeeping and, and honeybees are basically you know exist everywhere now where people can and so you know almost every culture or country um, maybe not every but a lot, you know. Most countries probably have some type of beekeeping history or some type oh, of yeah. honey hunting history. No, no. History. I, I mean that's
1: right. It's it's uh, it's uh, you know, not quite universal, but darn close. And and it doesn't take much effort if if that to either go and seek it or or see it in the course of whatever else you're doing. And uh, I just am always interested and in, um. Stopping and we always try to buy some honey wherever we are and I, one time I had honey from 60 countries on a shelf here oh,
0: um, that's that's a really neat thing to collect yeah because it's all yeah, going to taste different Yeah, not,
1: you know, it never goes bad I mean just it's, 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 it's uncrystallize it
0: yeah uh, <laughs> yeah so um, you know I guess is there um, a really a, a really interesting Tasting honey that you've tried that just wasn't uh, similar to anything else that you've had before? Or?
1: Well, I, I think my two favorite honey, well, yeah, there's some that I haven't liked, and I just, didn't, uh, like, forgive me, I don't really like Manuka honey from New Zealand.
0: Oh, uh, really?
1: I, I just don't like the taste, but <laughs> people say it's, uh, you know, really great uh, for you health wise, um, but I I just, Seems like, uh, uh, seems like, uh, oh god, I don't know, uh, engine oil. But, uh, but my two favorite honeys, uh, you know, aside from my own, are, uh, there's a Greek honey that's made up in the, around Olympia that has a, a sort of overtaste of, um, of, of, pine, of uh, that resin in it, and they're called humatus. And then, uh, heather honey, Um, there's heather honey here, but there's in Scotland too. I like that, that taste. Um, but I like a lot of honeys. Uh, and, um, so it's always fun to taste other people's honey.
0: Have you had any experience in observing some of the other species of honeybees like, uh, Apis, Serrana, or Dasata?
1: Um, no, no. Um, uh, I, I've been in, in Southeast Asia, uh, and India, but I've never been in places where they were, you know, uh, where the, the hives or the, you know, wild or domestic were, were in use. Oh, okay. So
0: I'm, I'm, can't so, help on that one. Yeah. So they, I guess, um, uh, even in those areas primarily keep European honeybees. Is that correct?
1: Well, no, I, I think it varies. Uh, they, um, uh, I think the Chinese um, are mostly European honeybees. I think most people who want large quantities of honey have moved to European honeybees and Langstroth hives. Uh, and, uh, but there still are some people that will go out and collect dorsata uh, honey or or Apis florea, which is the smallest of the honeybees, and, and there is some Apis cerana, uh, but but by and large, this is a this is a world of Apis uh, mellifera, uh, at least on the commercial scale. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well. Um, so yeah, you you've written a book on honeybees, or at least beekeeping. Uh, Bees besieged. Is that the yeah. um, only book you've written on uh, beekeeping so far?
1: It's uh, I... the only book I've written on beekeeping. On, bee, on book on beekeeping, I've written some others, but yeah, and it's, uh, it's a personal account of 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 uh, both my uh, a chapter or so of my amateur beekeeping, and then uh, kind of I travel around. To, Fifteen or twenty states, and talked to a bunch of people about in the industry, and the book came out just before CCD arrived. So it came out in two thousand and five, and then CCD came in, and and that's that's at least changed the public perception of what beekeeping is like and the threats to bees, and and uh, so mine is is much more like an odyssey of uh, of, of beekeeping. Uh, in the United States in the, uh, right at the turn of the century. Uh, so it's a mixture of, of, uh, hobbyists and, and professionals. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, yeah, well, you don't have to give out any spoilers or, any, or anything, um, but were you just kind of trying just to gain a view of, of the current state of beekeeping in the U.S. as far as honey markets go or or bee health or kind well, of an overview Well,
1: I was trying to get a, a sense of the yeah, the state of beekeeping both from a from a commercial standpoint. I mean, I was fascinated that the engine of beekeeping in the in the United States has become almonds in California. And if yeah. you took away almonds, uh, I think the beekeeping industry would crash because uh it's Oh, two-thirds of the bees in the United States are now in California doing almonds. And, uh, and almonds are dependent upon water. And how much water is there going to be in California? And, I mean, is there, so will that market adjust? And, uh, but, but what are the results of having, uh, the California is a flu clinic and you got two-thirds of all the bees in the country and carried in there and then dispersed back into the, and getting all that stress and all that artificial nutrition and um and i don't know that that's a model that's sustainable uh but that is what the industry has become is one based upon long distance pollination not upon honey yeah Uh, and i think that's part of the of the you know one of the factors in ccd is the the stress and the movement of viruses uh uh, through, uh, by, by this, uh, long, long distance movement of the bees going from California to Maine and Pennsylvania and Florida and back again. Um, but if you're a beekeeper, uh, and you want to keep, uh, paying for your, your trucks and your hives and so forth, you gotta, you've got this, uh, uh, lion by the tail. Of uh, commercial demands and and uh, so they can't just. I mean, maybe they could, but they'll go out of business, or they simply say, "Well, I'm not going to California anymore. I'm gonna stay home and make honey."
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that it's slowly being realized that you know some of the issues with that. You know, if you look back and you know the evolution of bees, you know, they're or for any organism or animal you know their biggest uh defensive mecha- mechanism has been isolation and so it hasn't been that long in in uh, human history that we've been able to move things around so fast and and it kind of has sped up some of these transfers of uh parasites and parasites um, yeah pests right. and diseases and and uh but yeah i think i think it's yeah. Slowly, more and more, you know, evidence is coming out as to how important, you know, local adaptation is in, in main, maintaining genetic diversity, and, and so I think we're starting to see a lot more people raising their own queens, and which, you know, there's still the movement of uh, pollination bees going around, but, um, you know, people kind of becoming micro breeders and, and yeah. doing their own thing. Well, I, I hope it it's...
1: continues. I mean, I, I think you can do a lot worse than, than, uh, buying local queens. I mean, you don't want to just, just do your own queens because that gets to be inbreeding. But uh, if you've yeah. got a couple of suppliers in every, you know, 50 or hundred square miles, um, and, uh, uh, I think it would be terrific to to have that. i I, I mean I'm fortunate we've got two good readers I can buy from uh here in Vermont. And uh um so um yeah. So look I've got about five more minutes. Okay. I don't know if um no. if you've got any one burning question you no. wanna ask or if you've got all you need or or
0: Oh uh, maybe maybe just uh briefly go just like I guess you know, what, it's winter right now, of course, but you know, what are you kind of doing with your own bees? Kind of where are you at with that? Um, are you? Well, here? I'm
1: keeping my fingers crossed that yeah. they're okay. I mean, it's yeah. been a weird winter of, uh, not very much snow and some, some warm spells that where the bees actually, some of them got out and flew. So I'm thinking in another couple of weeks, I'm going to have to go at least test the weight of the hives and, uh, the ones that have, that are alive, and then decide if I'm going to feed them. Um, I mean, I had enough food in them uh, in, the, in October when I thought it'd be a normal winter. Uh, but if they broke the cluster in some cases and started eating more, then, then they're going to need some some food before I would normally feed them in March. Uh, but I I haven't gone into them. Uh, it's twenty. 25, 27 degrees right now, uh, and uh, but, yeah. you know, I, I try to get them set in the fall and hope that they'll get through the winter. I can, mean, they're, it's, right here, we, we're just not warm enough to go out and do something in the middle of the <laughs> winter time and, no, and no. uh, repair damage. Well...
0: Well, great! This has been a really good talk. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff. So I'm glad I got the chance to talk to you, and and you you have a lot of different experiences, and so that's just uh, really fascinating. Well, I've been very
1: lucky, and uh, I try not to get out over my skis in what I say, and uh, <laughs> I hope I don't sound like too much of a fool. Uh, no, but I, I appreciate good. the the chance to talk, and uh, you know, if you. Have any more questions? Give me another call back, okay. or it, it, it is easier for me to answer these questions by phone than trying to answer them in email. Oh, yeah. um, so, um, so I'm okay. happy to have done this. Uh,
0: Great, yeah. Well, thanks. Maybe I'll try to get a get a hold of you, um, you know, sometime again. So, um, but yeah, thanks again. Okay, well, you're more than welcome. Great to talk to you. So, I hope you enjoyed the talk with Bill Mayers. I'll put a link to his book and a link to a video of a good presentation he's done. And I just want to remind you of the new Thinking Bee Podcast Facebook page. I'll put a link to that as well, and so make sure you like that. And until next time, thanks for listening.